Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you from the team behind the environmental magazine, The Ends Report. Every fortnight, we'll give you a rundown of the biggest green news stories. We'll take you through some of the nastier chemicals creating problems for people and wildlife. And we'll take a forensic look at some of the more deep-rooted environmental issues facing us today. I'm Rachel Salvage, Deputy Editor of The Ends Report, and this is The Eco Chamber. In this episode, we'll be looking at whether a big rewilding push is actually eco-colonialism in disguise, why recycling rates are looking decidedly dodgy, and then, I'm sorry to say, things take a bit of a scatological turn. We're going to be examining why chicken and human poop is devastating our rivers, and then the Chemical Brothers are going to make you rethink your face tattoo. You lucky, lucky things. Let's enter the eco-chamber. The first story we're going to be talking about in the Big Green News section is about rewilding. I have with me in the studio Tess Colley, journalist Ends Report, and... I'm Jamie Carpenter, editor of Ends Report and Ends Europe. And we're going to talk about rewilding. So this is a big topic at the moment. It's becoming ever more popular, and it needs to be. The UK is one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world, and its forest cover is pretty pathetic too. Within Europe, the UK has the least forest cover of around 13%. If you take countries like Finland, they have 74%, Sweden has 69%, Germany 33%, France 32 and so on. But we have a measly 13 which is pretty pathetic. This is just one of the many, many, many reasons why rewilding is coming back into force. Now, Tess has a good news story for us in this area. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, yes. So it's not often get to about good things. I know. Um, the good news is that um, a group of organisations such as the National Trust, RSPB, but also people you might not think about like the Church of England have uh, come together and formed a pact or a deal to restore and protect large parts of their land uh, in a bid to help the UK get towards its carbon emission goals and to uh, meet other targets like like we talked about last time. Um, about halting the decline of species in the UK. And so these groups have come together and according to iNews, if you add all their land together, it equates to a third of England, which which is massive. That's huge. It is huge. I would say that knowing who owns what is famously actually quite hard to pin down, yeah. but big group of organisations who own lots of land. So how are they going to go about that? So they're going to tackle carbon emissions by coming together, making a pledge, and what are they going to do to their landscapes? So it varies quite a lot between the different organisations, what they're going to do. Uh, But when it comes to restoring land, that could mean anything from protecting peatlands, planting new woodland, reconnecting or re-wiggling rivers uh, and managing coastal erosion. And, you know, different organisations said they do different things. Uh, Yorkshire Water, the only water company that has signed this letter Mm -hmm. uh, to the environment minister. And they, you know, they say they're going to cut operational emissions to net zero by 2030, although who knows about the sewage emissions. Um, (laughs) More of that later, More of that later. Um, And plant one million trees in Yorkshire by 2028. Uh, The church commissioners, they're talking about achieving net zero investment portfolio by 2050. Um, But the church have come into some bad press sometimes over the state of the triple SIs, which are protected areas on their land, because the church own loads and loads and loads of land. Lots of it is farmland. But yeah, there's, they haven't got a great track record necessarily. That, so hopefully that will mean they'll be improving some of those sites. So there are actually targets that they can be held against in the future for some of them, I guess, not all of them. Yeah, for some of them. I mean, from what we've seen so far in the letter that they've sent to 
uh, DEFRA, there's some are more specific than others, like the National Association for Areas of Natural Beauty. They've been quite specific about what they want to do, uh, you know, creating and restoring uh, 100,000 hectares of habitat outside Great. of protected areas. Mm. So that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, and also restoring, well, restoring is not the word, also protecting at least 200,000 hectares of triple SIs mm. uh, in the areas of natural beauty, which is quite a large percentage of the protected areas within those sites. So that's quite good. It's fantastic to see all these huge landowners coming together on this project. Rewilding in itself has become a, a huge topic over the past few years. Um, Jamie, can you let us know about any of the other initiatives that are ongoing? Yeah, well, I think I think one of the interesting things that's been happening is that um, this is becoming a, a big area of business for consultancies and, and, and others. So the almost like the monetizing of biodiversity is a clear direction of travel now in the UK and that's in part driven by legislative changes like biodiversity net gain and the Environment Act and um, kind of changes to farming services after Brexit um, and, and that means that we're seeing this growing interest so in, in the environmental consultancy market we had last year RSK launch a new rewilding business called RSK Wilding mm. uh, and, and that kind of aims to connect companies with um, companies that need to compensate wildlife losses um, resulting from their developments with farmers and other landowners. Mm, I think there have been quite a few of these kind of companies cropping up over the last few years. One of the newer ones is the Real Wild Estates Company, which is a kind of estate agency if anyone wants to buy land and restore nature on it. But it's been accused of eco-colonialism. Jamie, can you explain that for me? Yeah, it's a um, really interesting term. And I think I think the launch of that that company, which has, has been backed by a big fund set up by L'Oreal, yeah. um, so the, the response has been quite mixed. So some people are positive and not everyone's happy about it. And and. So this criticism around eco-colonialism is um, around the fact that the company has apparently identified large Highland estates in Scotland as as ripe for purchase, and that that's kind of aggravated people. So that there are there are um, arguments that this is comparable with the Highland clearances of the mid eighteenth century, and and will essentially result in people yeah. employed in rural professions losing their jobs and being booted off the land. Yeah, and the money earned won't stay in Scotland, probably. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. I think I think similar concerns over there. There's a big rewilding scheme in Wales. I think that. Um, those kind of concerns have been um, voiced about as well. So the proponents of rewilding have got quite a big job on their hands to kind of get the farming community on side. Mm. Yeah. And those who are staunchly against it, they just say, how can capitalism solve the problems of capitalism as well? Yes. Yes, they, they, they do say that. And I think that just comes down to a, a philosophical difference sometimes at the end of the day is if, you, you know, if capitalism and markets caused all this environmental destruction, then are they really the best places to try and fix it? Um the jury's out, I think. Mm. I guess in 30 years, if we look back and see that these companies have actually created more connected landscapes. The Environment Bank, I think, is what, another one that's cropped up. Mm. I spoke to one of their, their founders last week and he was telling me they want to create connected habitats in places where maybe a local authority or local developers could buy into. So, Because it's quite important when you're looking at biodiversity that you don't just buy a credit in the Highlands if you're doing a development in the yeah, south of England. Exactly. Um, so that's that's an interesting way to look at it. Um, and may some other people might say that only the markets and only businesses are the people who'd have the investment to put into this sort of thing. Let the market decide, Tess. Okay. Let it decide. <laughs> okay, Rachel. <laughs> In our next story, we're going to be talking about recycling and waste. The government's latest report on this is a bit of a shocker. According to its own figures, more than half the rubbish collected from households that could be recycled is actually sent to landfills or incinerated, which are not exactly the most environmentally friendly disposal methods. Jamie, could you give me a little bit more on what's in this report? 
Yeah, so this is um, a monitoring report that um, the, the DEFRA is putting out after the launch of its uh, resources waste strategy three years or so ago. So the the finding is quite interesting that, and it does sound quite bad on the face of it, that 53% of residual waste collected consists of readily recyclable materials. But actually, what, what it's really talking about is kind of what, what could be done about that waste in the future. So the rest of that material could either be potentially recycled in the future with new technologies or substituted for recyclable material. So although although it sounds bad, it's kind of slightly more nuanced than that. Is the reason there is all this recyclable waste going into landfill, is that because consumers don't understand which bin to put their waste in or is it because that there are councils can't pick them up and divide them properly? Do you know what the government is saying is the source of this problem? I think one of the issues is we, we know from looking at the data that there's actually very quite stark variation in recycling waste between local authorities and one, mm. one of the one of the things that the government wants to do through I think the Environment Act is to have more consistency in how recycling is collected. Um, and I think one of the one of the big problems is is really that we're still creating a lot of waste. So mm. when when you look one one of the one of the things that struck me from the report is actually the the amount of waste being generated is is actually increasing, including hazardous waste. Yeah. So, um, which is not 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 great. So, so I think, and I think when um, that comment um, a few weeks ago from Boris Johnson about recycling not working, which kind of caused a bit of a row. Um, but actually, you had this interesting thing where you had, I think, Greenpeace saying that he was telling the truth, which doesn't happen very often with Boris Johnson. Um, <laughs> but but um, you heard it here first. You heard it here yeah. first. So, he's, he's, I think the, the, the kind of argument is that that we need to focus more on reducing and reuse mm. rather than, and, and and we can't actually recycle our way out of the waste crisis. So, Jamie, what are DEFRA's overarching targets on waste? So, there's um, they're quite they're quite stretching. Um, so, one one is to eliminate all avoidable waste by 2050, right? And all avoidable plastic waste by 20 the end of 2042. Um, and I think when you, when you look at the the figures, it, it does look like a, a bit of a big ask to get there. So, you probably remember there was a row a couple of years ago about the UK failing to transpose the recycling targets in the EU circular economy package mm. into UK law after Brexit, and there was a bit of a a backlash after that and and the government did commit to the targets after being accused by breaching the withdrawal agreement but when you look at the targets in that package against current recycling weight rates you can see there's a really really long way to go so i think that that demands that 55 percent of municipal waste is recycled or reused by 2025 yeah rising to 60 percent in 2013 65 percent in 2035 and our recycling rate at the moment or 2019 was only 46.2 percent and it's not so it's not rising anywhere nearly quickly enough so given all the figures and given the targets, what is DEFRA looking at in terms of the technologies and things that it might need and the investment and where does the money need to go to make mm. all this stuff happen? Um, well, there's a lot of talk at the moment about energy from waste technology, mm. which, you know, does what it says on the tin, creates energy from waste. Yeah. Um, but I think something that the, these figures suggest is actually, should you be looking at new technologies necessarily? Should you be investing? Mm. If so much of what is being sent to landfill is already actually recyclable, should you not be investing in, you know, things that you mentioned, um, Rachel, about having food recycling yeah. services mandatory in different councils or making labelling on packaging better so people actually know what they're meant to be doing with Absolutely, that stuff. Yeah. Um, if that might actually be a better use of resources than, you know, putting all your eggs in a, in a technology that may or may not work. Yeah. I mean, I, I constantly struggle to understand what food packaging can mm. be recycled and what can't. I do I do really try, but sometimes it's just very difficult to tell. Yeah. Um, you know, that labelling needs to be much better. There are plans to force producers to cut back on the uh, unrecyclable plastic content within their packaging. And the plastic tax, which does just that, is going to enter force next year. But that's a whole 
other topic in itself, and we'll dig into that in a future episode. Our next story is also about waste, but this time it's a different kind. It's a chicken poop story. (laughs) It's a genre of news story that is rapidly gaining popularity in the specialist and national media. Essentially, the number of intensive chicken farms and the capacity of those farms have been increasing dramatically. And there's thought to be around 20 million chickens just around the Y catchment in Wales alone, which holds the unenviable title of the poultry capital of Wales. But the latest development in this uh, chicken farm saga is not in Wales, though. Taz, can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yes, we've moved to Shropshire now. Oh, great. The chickens have come to Shropshire. <laughs> um, <laughs> and this is a public service announcement. The chickens <laughs> yes. are in Shropshire. The BBC won't cover this. Um, well, no, they probably will. Um, <laughs> I think they have. They think they have, yeah. Uh, but the, so the, the, the story is, yeah. last week, some councillors in Shropshire... Uh, voted against um, a planning application for a new massive, I think it's 210,000 bird chicken farm. Mm. Um, and it's been voted down against the advice of, of planning officers because local people are very opposed to the odour and mm. uh, they've called it dust, but basically like the ammonia emissions, mm. basically. Euphemisms. Um, euphemisms, <laughs> again. Um, so that's been voted down. So not necessarily on environmental grounds, from the local people's point of view. But this is something that's it's a big issue because what happens is often um, when chickens do their thing everywhere, uh, <laughs> and when there's a lot of chickens, there's what's called runoff. The manure can basically run into the rivers and cause eutrophication. Uh, which basically, What's eutrophication? Do? Eutrophication is a process by which the nutrients in the manure cause... Phosphates and things. Phosphates, yeah. yes, cause an algal bloom uh, which takes a lot of the oxygen out of the water and obviously makes it quite difficult for aquatic life. Yeah. Um, but so what's happened in with this case is the the, the councillors said no. It, it, it's quite possible that they're going to get overruled later on by the sounds of it because legally the the farmer has said he's going to move the manure somewhere else, but we don't know where. Just somewhere else. He's just going to hide it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> somewhere else is going to have the problem. I don't okay. know. Um, and air scrubbers. I hadn't heard about air scrubbers before I saw this story. Um, but using them to deal with the ammonia emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll see what happens. Apparently there's quite an interesting backstory to this. Jamie, can you uh, let us know a bit about it? Yeah, I think I think it was it's interesting from an environmental case law perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is actually quite a long-running planning saga. And this case was subject of a legal challenge um, which went to the Court of Appeal. So permission was granted I think first in 2017 but that was then quashed later by the judges um, and the court ruled that the application's environmental impact assessment was deficient right. which sounds quite quite strong. Did, but, it, did it say what it was deficient in? It was. It was because it did not include a meaningful assessment of the effects of odour and dust from right. the storage and spreading of manure. So okay. What Tess has been talking about is the the kind of steps that have since been made to kind of remedy those concerns. So the air scrubbers and the fact that the the manure is going to be taken elsewhere rather than being spread on the fields there. Um, and I think that made that the meant that the officers felt that they the application should be approved, but the councillors went against that advice. Right. And given that there are so many chicken farms across the country and there seem to be more each time I'm constantly seeing environmental permits being granted for expansions and and new ones Um, how is the environment agency or maybe I should rephrase that is the environment agency keeping a close eye on this and because we know that rivers such as the Y which I mentioned earlier are really struggling as a result of these um, emissions from 
uh, chickens? Um, well, I, th- I think I think campaigners say that that environmental is not doing enough. So there's um, a new, fairly new campaign group called River Action UK, um, and they're what they're trying to do, which is quite interesting, which is to raise awareness of this issue and apply pressure on the agricultural producers to take greater responsibility for the impact of their supply chains on on river quality. So they're kind of taking a position that the Environment Agency is not doing enough on this. Yeah. Therefore, we're going to shame these companies into taking action, um, yeah. which I think they, they've, they, so there's been a f- sort of a few letters going back with the for- back and forth with the these producers and... Um, and it may it may well be that the the kind of impact of reputational damage or mm. might might actually cause these companies to change what they're doing ra- rather than a threat of financial penalties from yeah. the regulator. Name and shame strategy. I think they've had some success with one of the big producers called uh, Avara. I mean, they've written to lots of them and, and been completely stonewalled. But this company has said that you know it's put its hands up and says yes, we are part of the problem and we are going to be part of the solution. And they've pledged to do things like using it as a fuel source for generating renewable energy. Um, and then they will also pledge to import less phosphate into the catchment within its chicken feed in the first place. So it seems like they are having some impact and it would be great if the other ones would uh, take note and follow suit. Thank you, Tess. Thank you, Jamie. And that's the end of our big green news section. We're going to move on. Uh, We're continuing with our watery and scatological theme. In our next segment, we're going to be getting mired in more sewage, but it's the human kind. Don't say we don't treat you. So unless you've been under a rock in the last uh, few weeks, you will have probably seen that there is a massive issue with sewage pollution in our rivers and seas. It's been all over the media. Uh, The government has been forced to act on it. Campaigners have been working really, really hard. And now there are clauses in the Environment Act that we're going to force the water sector to stop dumping untreated sewage into our rivers and coastal waters. Essentially, the water sector is allowed to dump untreated sewage into uh, rivers and seas. They've got permits given to them by the Environment Agency that allow them to do that if their uh, sewage systems are overwhelmed, but only under certain conditions. So the conditions would be um, that there's extreme rainfall or really heavy snowmelt, and at the same time, they will have had to have been treating a specified volume of sewage under those conditions. And if they're still overwhelmed, then they can dump it into the rivers and seas. However, they're telling the Environment Agency that last year they dumped 400,000 times and for around 3.1 million hours. And that's a huge amount. But we actually know that that is not really reflective of reality because not all of these outfalls are monitored, so they can't possibly know. So this is probably just the tip of the um, pooberg. Can I say pooberg? <laughs> I probably shouldn't. Um, so swiftly moving over to Jamie, can you let us know what's, what's the latest on this? So the, the, I suppose there's been quite a lot going on recently with this issue. The um, Environment Act getting royal assent is kind of quite a key moment. So... Um, I think from the government's point of view, they were hoping that the Environment Act would get all the during during COP26 and they, they would be able to kind of use that as a as a way of trumpeting their, their world-beating environmental credentials during the, during world the summit. World-beating. World-beating, yes. exactly. But actually, there was this huge, huge row of sewage, and get ready for my bad joke, which kind of put the pong into parliamentary ping-pong. Yes! <laughs> yes, Jamie! <laughs> so, um, so basically, ministers were, were ended up having to fight off accusations that they were giving the go-ahead to water companies to dump raw sewage into, into rivers, which is really not what they wanted to... It's not a vote winner, is not it? Not a vote winner, not, not a great look during a major international environmental conference. Not really. and, and also, <laughs> the, the, you kind of know when the 
the government's really upset by the the, the media's coverage of um, an environmental issue when when something pops up on the the Defra Media blog. <laughs> sure, sure enough, the department sort of used the 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 blog to do a whole rebuttal exercise to set the record straight on the uh, sewage overflow provisions. Well. So a number of things brought this to a head. So there have been campaigners have been working tirelessly uh, for years on this issue. But what seemed to really break through was um, Professor Peter Hammond. He's a retired data scientist. Um, he's working with the Windrush Against Sewage Pollution campaign group. He worked out that the water companies were dumping many, many more times than they were claiming that they were dumping. Um, but how did he do this, Jamie? I think you've got a little bit of information on that. Yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, his his evidence to the Environmental Audit Committee, I think, is a is a kind of key moment in in this story. And to say he he kind of applied big data and artificial intelligence to the problem. Um, and it's it's kind of quite hard to say and talk about it in words without without kind of being able to 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 show our our listeners. Paint pictures. us a picture. <laughs> yeah, I'll try and paint your picture. So think <laughs> think of a camel with two humps. Okay. Um, so in dry weather. The usual pattern of sewage flow through a sewage treatment works has two peaks. So you see one in the early morning and one in the late evening, and hence the camel. So it's it's kind of shaped like a camel's twin humps. Obscure, but I'm still with you. Still, yeah, just about <laughs> hang on in there. So, um, so when, when but, but when sewage is spilled, the the profile is flattened. So basically, okay, you don't have those two peaks, right? Exactly. Okay. So, so what, what what Professor Hammond did was he he kind of got a whole load of data from water companies, I think over several years using environmental information regulations and looked at all this data and basically he let algorithms loose on the data and discovered that there were hundreds of potentially non-compliant spills at one sewage works and, and sort of detected similar results at other mm. other sewage works. Yeah. I think he calculated that Thames Water, for example, was only reporting 5% of the spills that it was actually discharging into, into the rivers and Thames Water haven't denied that. They've just said, oh, thank, we thank you very much for your information. We will go away and have a look at that. And there was another case which is slightly separate but just shows you how the water companies are not disclosing, fully disclosing this information, was that we had uh, Yorkshire Water. Um, they were discharging from a wastewater treatment plant and there's this local campaigner who was filming it and he filmed had lots of photographs and lots of videos and he was, you know, sent it all to them and said, How can you say there were no spills in at this time when I've got these dated photographs and videos? And they kind of tried to fob him off and then we went to went to the uh, York, Yorkshire Water and asked the same question and they were like, Oh, oh yeah, well oh there. Oh, the monitor for that one that's broken. Sorry, sorry. Whoops, sorry about that. So and then you look at Southern Water, who was fined ninety million pounds for deliberately discharging uh, into rivers and coastal waters, I should say, and for deliberately uh, lying about what they were doing. So they deliberately tried to mislead the Environment Agency on how they were performing in this area, and that's uh, they got a stiff bill for that. Um, I think lately Thames Waters had a couple of £4 million fines as well. So the Environment Agency is on it, but these prosecutions are expensive and they take a really long time, so something bigger needed to take place, and I think now it is. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think, as you say, the the um, there are there are some fines, but they're they're kind of fairly few and far between, and they're just like operating costs, aren't they? For yeah, these exactly, they're not companies. They're, water companies aren't really going to lose much sleep over them. Yeah. Um, but but they're they're um, following all this um, this furore over, over sewage spills. That there there is now a a joint environment agency off what investigation into this issue, um, which which could presumably see kind of much some more more 
strong action on this. Mm. The water sector, so the DEFRA is saying the water sector, spooked by the idea that they might have to put monitors on all their uh, outfalls, have gone to the Environment Agency and DEFRA saying, actually, we probably do have a problem and they've confessed to it. Whereas, you know, NGOs and people like the group that Peter Hammond works for are saying, no, it's all our hard work that's done that. And clearly it's Peter Hammond's because he's actually given you the evidence to show you that. So there's a bit of a, a tussle over whose victory this is, which I think is quite amusing. Um, I think we have to say it is a joint effort. Um, but I think Peter played a special part. I think so. And I, I think one of the, the interesting things in, in looking at the data, although there's been this this kind of push for transparency by the government and, and, and there is quite a lot of data out there, I think that the thing that is that kind of strikes me is actually how little we still know about it. Mm. So the, the, I mean, one of the things from Professor Hammond's um, evidence is that basically saying that event duration monitor devices, the, the things that are supposed to monitor the, the sewage spills are just not, he doesn't think they're, they're reliable in detecting spills anyway, so, <laughs> which is hardly encouraging. Yeah. So you've got this 400,000 spill figure yeah. that probably is a massive underestimate anyway, and, and mm. that, that's on the basis of devices that probably don't work very well. So it's not a wow. pretty picture. This is great. And, and it seems to me that the Environment Agency, and not just to me, you know, campaigners have said it, that the Environment Agency are becoming auditors rather than you know protecting the environment they're going to sectors that they're regulating like water or waste saying oh, are you doing the right thing have you filled in the paperwork is that what it's supposed to be and they you know they're replying yes yes of course it is and they so the environment agency is like great well done gold star run along and there's you know so they can really get away with this it's called operator self monitoring and um it's understandable that you can't get the environment agency to monitor everything for all these industries that would be impossible but the way it's operating at the moment it doesn't seem to be the best idea Jamie, do you want to play Top of the Poops? <laughs> I think we're going to have to. <laughs> <laughs> you have to introduce it, though, because it's going to be really confusing people. Confusing, yeah. Okay, so a few weeks ago, this website popped up, the name Top of the Poops. Um, we, we don't know who is behind it, um, or well, I suppose we know what they're trying to achieve through it, but um, whoever has done it, they, they've taken the Environment Agency's data and, and data also for Wales and arranged it by Parliamentary Constituency and Water Company. Um, so you can actually see by MP who has the most sewage being discharged in their constituencies and which um, water companies are just discharging the most mm. most sewage. That's really going to focus their minds if their constituents come at them with their gripes about this. So, so there's actually a ranking of the, uh, is it by area or constituency or water company? How is it broken down? Um, you can see water company. Um, okay. So... Um, can I guess? You can try, yes. Okay. So the company that's discharging the most, I'm going to have to say... Oh, so, as in what they've actually confessed to, because obviously that's that's yeah, so more okay. the data that's been reported. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to go with. I want to say Southern because they've been so bad, but the area might be smaller than Thames. So maybe I want to say Thames. I'm going to go with Southern. And the answer is actually Welsh Water. Oh, sorry, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I misread. It's not, but it's not Thames or Southern. Oh. It's actually it's um, United Utilities. Oh, and, United and Welsh Utilities. Water is only just behind United Utilities. Right. Okay, that's very interesting. And so, which constituency, constituency. do I mean? It's Welsh yeah. one, which I'm not going to be able to. Oh, I was another Welsh one. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are the the. the um, I think one of the interesting things actually is that the three constituencies with the most discharges are all in Wales. Right. So, so although although a lot of the attention. Mm. So far, has been on um, this being a big problem in in England. The the, the figures for Wales aren't aren't particularly um, pretty, and we don't actually know very much about what's going on in Scotland or Northern mm. Ireland at the moment. So yeah. I think there's still a lot more to come on this. I feel some articles coming on. 
Exactly. Okay. All right, look forward to the next edition of Top of the Poops. We should keep it in every uh, every section. No, sorry. Moving on. Thank you, Jamie. That was very, uh, well, a lot more fun than I expected it to be, to be honest. Moving on to our next segment, we have Simon and Gareth with The Chemical Brothers. Thanks for that, Rachel. On our radar this week are tattoos, which have been enjoying something of a renaissance in the past few years. It's estimated that around a fifth of people in Europe have at least one, and that percentage is doubled among young people. But doctors and regulators have long been concerned about the health risks of tattoos, not just from unhygienic tattooing practices like reusing needles, but now from the inks themselves. So, Simon, why are people worried about inks? At the moment, there's very little regulation about the presence of harmful substances and tattoo inks, and also actually permanent makeup, um, which is a, a second area of concern. In some cases, basically, the presence of harmful substances can cause things like allergic reactions. You can have skin sensitivity um, from the dyes or the kind of some of the ingredients within the dyes, particularly actually for red inks, seems to be a particular cause of concern. There's also some evidence of a link to cancer with some of the harmful substances that are found in them. It's quite stunning to think that people are literally injecting carcinogens into other people's skin. This is extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, and it's also one of the reasons why regulators are stepping in here. Um, so what's happening in the EU is that we've got new rules coming into force in January 2022, which will limit something like 4,000 or set new restrictions on 4,000 substances that have been found in tattoo inks and in permanent makeup. In some cases, that means maximum concentration limits, for instance, um, and that's the case for things like azo dyes, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, methanol, heavy metals. Um, but we're also seeing a full ban on two dyes, a blue dye called unimaginatively pigment blue 15 colon 3 and pigment green 7, which will uh, be phased out after a two-year transition period. I th I'm stunned to hear you say those ingredients, especially the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. I mean, I just it just stuns me that anybody thought, I oh, know, let's put some of these in, <laughs> these in, it'll be, it'll be fine. <laughs> it's, just, it's just absurd. Anyway, um, what are the UK authorities doing about this extraordinary problem? So um, we have this thing, Brexit, um, which has complicated the picture. The UK doesn't have to follow chemicals rules anymore and in fact isn't, um, or the new ones. We're still following the old ones. They've been grandfathered over. So the UK regulator, uh, sorry, the GB regulator, the health and safety executive, is also planning new restrictions, but we are a little bit of a way from seeing any concrete proposals. It just closed up initial consultation on tattoo inks, permanent makeup at the end of November. No, at the beginning of November, sorry. Um, but yeah, we can't really be expecting anything until at least the new year. What a mess. So going to end up here with two sets of regulations introduced at different times and potentially with uh, different thresholds for different chemicals. That's, that's exactly the nightmare situation that uh, both the chemicals industry and chemical campaigners alike highlighted when uh, Brexit was being discussed. I mean, it's precisely the thing that they didn't want to happen, yeah. Um, and you may remember, Gareth, at a certain point after the Brexit referendum, the, the chemicals industry teamed up with green groups in a kind Indeed. of unbelievable, um, unbelievable alliance to lobby for the UK to remain part of the EU chemicals regime after Brexit. It really was the line laying down with the lamb, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it was, it was pretty extraordinary stuff. Um, and they actually 
failed to persuade Whitehall, who took the UK out of all of that um, regime. Um, and we're left in the situation we are we're in now. Yeah, I've, personally, I never thought there was any prospect of it. That's uh, regulatory alignment happening because it simply wasn't compatible with uh, being outside the single market. Yeah, I mean, that, and which was a you know, as we all know, a political choice rather than a regulatory. I mean, I rather so. than a, informed by what those lobby groups wanted. Anyway, so back to the subject of tattoos. Um, listeners might be a little bit worried about uh, what this might mean for them if they uh, do have some uh, colourful skin. Are they, at, uh, are they at risk? Should they try and remove them? Um, this is a really complicated question. And I think the first point of call is if you are suffering from any kind of allergies, if you've got any kind of um, uh, skin problems associated with a tattoo, go and speak to a doctor. Um, I cannot give you any good advice here. Um, in all likelihood, if you've been tattooed at a reputable tattoo artist, um, you'll likely be fine. Um, but it is worth noting that removing a tattoo doesn't necessarily remove the chemical nasties that may be causing you issues. And in some cases, actually, because it's, you're using lasers to effectively uh, break down those molecules, they can actually they can actually be transformed into smaller molecules that are more likely to be absorbed into your body. So, um, uh, uh I mean, I think the advice is um, you're probably going to be fine. Um, um, but if you are in any way concerned, I would seek advice from a medical professional. So uh, the moral of the story sounds like this, uh, these substances should never have been in the inks in the first place. And at least that uh, regulators have uh, wised up to what's going on and are moving in the right direction. Yeah. And it's also it's also good that the UK, despite Brexit, is, is moving ahead with its own regulations. Indeed. Uh, some of the... Uh, First measures under UK reach, actually, aren't they? Yeah. Anyway, uh, back to Rachel. On that note, we've come to the end of the podcast. Thank you for listening. There's tons more material on the Energy Report website on everything we've been talking about today. So if you feel the urge for another sewage hit, you know where to go. We're going to take a little break over Christmas now, but back in January with lots more scintillating stories for you. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next time. Have a good Christmas. <laughs>